Hey there, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell and the Forgotten Victims. Now, as usual, before I dive in, I'm going to give the usual heads up that the content and information that you're going to hear may be triggering or upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. You're going to hear about real victims, real cases, real perpetrators and their behaviour at real crime scenes. There are going to be some graphic details throughout. Unfortunately, it comes with the territory. Murder is distressing. Victims being killed and harmed is a truly terrible business. Now, in episode 26, I detailed what was known about Pierce and compared it with my analysis from his crime scene behaviour. What did you think about that? What did you make of that? As I said, this case and these episodes in particular have been a lot of work. I approached the case from the beginning as I would any case, and therefore I concentrated on the victimology, the behaviour at crime scenes, and the geography. And since then, I've been deep diving much more about P.S. Admittedly, I knew very little about him, given how old this case is. It was before my time at New Scotland Yard, and like I said, the only thing that was really talked about was that prostitutes were targeted and killed by P.S. and the recommendations from the Byford Report. And with this case, it's not been easy separating fact from fiction and the media reporting that has heavily relied on the police narrative. In some ways, it's very similar to the Whitechapel murders in 1888 or the Jack the R-Word case. I've spent a lot of time analysing this case too, and I did a documentary about it back in 2006 with my boss, former Deputy Assistant Commissioner John Grieve. It was called Reveal Jack the R-Word, the First Serial Killer. Now, I could do a few episodes about my behavioural analysis and findings with this case if you're interested. Let me know. Okay, there are a couple of points I want to make building on from the last episode. You see, I've just discovered that a police officer called George Smith spent time with Sonia when P.S. was being questioned. Apparently, she didn't ask one question about him or what was happening, and George Smith said this. I can honestly say that had I not spent 15 hours with Sonia, I would never have accepted that the wife of the Yorkshire R-word didn't know who he was. But having spent all that time with her, I was satisfied that she didn't know. Well, that's instructive to me, and it chimes with what I believe too. It's also not easy spending time deeply immersed in P.S.'s headspace, in his psychosocial development, decision-making and psychopathology. It's dark. And I can't just jump into the profile of P.S. without understanding his psychosocial development, the early years, the decisions that he took across his life course, the pathway to violence and timeline to murder, and his behaviour, the pre-offence, his behaviour during the commission of an offence, post-offence, and behaviour and decisions post-conviction. Remember, violence doesn't occur in a vacuum. It's on a continuum. Now, this is a really important point regarding the why done it and learning opportunities. And at the start of Crime Analyst in this series, I said I would examine and focus on the why done it. And the motive isn't just one dimensional, as many media commentators and others would have you believe. Oftentimes you hear things like, it's because of X that he did Y. Well, that really oversimplifies it and almost gives an offender an excuse or an out And I have no intention of doing that or letting him and others off the hook. And I said I would focus on early identification, intervention and prevention opportunities too. 
And so I've spent time forensically deconstructing every aspect of the case in order to identify the learning opportunities. Furthermore, a number of professionals have emailed me, all wishing to remain anonymous, but they have had involvement with PS and have shared key insight. Now, as I said before, it wasn't my intention to spend this long on PS, as I don't want him to overshadow the victims in any way, but there are some things that I felt it important to highlight so that you can understand my process and how I arrive at an inference or opinion and my assessment of PS. And so to this next clip that I want to play for you, and I've thought long and hard about whether I include it. Should I include PS's voice and his narrative? That has been the question. Well, there is something about his voice that I mentioned in the last episode that I actually do want you to hear, like his actual voice itself. And I do want you to hear his narrative, particularly given what this episode is about, and in particular, motive. His motive for brutally attacking and killing so many women, and what happened post-trial, his transfer to Broadmoor, and of course the indirect assessment of PS using the PCLR. You see, there really is no substitute for hearing or seeing something for yourself. And as I keep saying, I want you to hear the granular detail that I go into with my analysis, and I want you to make up your own mind. And so on that basis, I decided to include this short clip for the purposes of analysis. And it's short, as I refuse to platform him any more than I need to. So you're now going to hear P.S.'s voice and him talking about what happened at the trial, as well as what he says about his motive for his behaviour. The whole thing was a farce anyway, as far as I'm concerned. It was just a plumbing farce, because the uh, Attorney General, Sir Michael Evans, agreed with the doctors, and he said to the judge, he said, Your Honour, uh, this will not be a full-scale trial, it will just be a hearing, a medical hearing. Because all the doctors on both sides are agreed, 100%. And he said, oh, he said, we'll see about that, we'll bring a jury in to decide. Where all that speculation comes from, because of the judge overturning the, the, the agreements between the doctors. He overturned it and brought a jury in. And, and when they found me guilty of murder, it meant all those other things as well that are not true. You know, like, um, uh, like he said, then a sexual predator. Well, I'm not at all, I never have been. I was trying to stamp that sort of thing out when I was on my mission. They said it was a sex act to stab them in the chest or whatever. And, you know, and that was ridiculous. They said they, it was a sexual motive. Well, how else do you stab somebody, you know? What did you make of that? High-pitched voice, somewhat whiny, and a very local accent. His voice is unassuming, non-threatening. You wouldn't expect it to come out of him, right? It's disarming. The other thing that's noteworthy to me is having listened to him a number of times and spoken with professionals who worked with him is how garrulous he was and how much he would obfuscate. He would talk at you, barely pausing to draw breath. Long monologues, with the odd shocking detail normally directed towards women, the female professionals told me. Now again, I believe that he likes the shock value. This is actually true of a number of serial killers, including Levi Belford, 
who's since changed his name to Yusuf Rahim. Well, P.S. changed his name back to his mother's maiden name, Kunam. They share that in common too. More on him and that case another time. Okay, so back to P.S. So he said the whole trial was a farce. No doubt because he didn't get what he wanted. The poor me syndrome of it all is simply nauseating. Now, interestingly, Carl, P.S.'s brother, stopped speaking to him after he grew tired of all his self-pity. So it would seem that there was evidence of poor me syndrome. That doesn't surprise me in the slightest. I coined this term for perpetrators just like P.S. And notice the lack of empathy for the women and their families. He doesn't even mention them or what it must have been like for them. It's me, myself and I, and all about him. And it's clear he blamed the judge, Judge Borum, for, as he called it, overturning the agreement of the doctors. Well, Judge Borum was quite right to challenge the Michael Havis's decision, well, the Crown Prosecution Service's decision to accept the manslaughter plea. The psychiatrists had formed their clinical opinions regarding their diagnosis based on what P.S. told them and his narrative alone. None of them had even read the police reports or his confession. Now that was a farce. And I want to draw your attention to a few noteworthy things in terms of linguistic analysis and markers for deception here. And I should just add that I was trained at the FBI on interview and interrogation techniques, as well as statement analysis and indicators of deception. Okay, so P.S. says this. And when they, he's referring to the jury, found me guilty of murder, it meant all those other things as well that are not true. You know, like, uh, uh. Did you catch that? P.S. said, all those other things. Well, what jumps out at me is the vagueness and lack of specificity compared to the level of detail he uses at other times. He doesn't name what those other things are. He's trying to create distance. And then there's the hesitation, the uh, 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 and the lack of specificity again, all of which point to distance and potential deception. He doesn't want to talk about the sexual violence. That's what he's trying to avoid. It's the omission. He goes on. A sexual predator? Well, I'm not at all. I never have been. I was trying to stamp that stuff out when I was on my mission. Did you notice how his voice changed pitch here? It was much higher. And he talked about the mission. And stamp is the right word choice. This is leakage, because he literally stamped on some of the women. And remember, in his confession that he gave to police over a 24-hour period after he was arrested, he talked about the sexual motive regarding Wilma McCann, Emily Jackson and Helen Ricker. He admitted to his wife Sonia at the police station that he raped Helen. Well, he said, had sex with her. So next when he says, they said it was a sex act to stab them in the chest or whatever. The whatever is important. Again, it's intentionally vague and non-specific, And I'm comparing it to his actual confession, where he relays every micro detail of what he did to each victim. In fact, the officers who interviewed him and took his confession statement commented that P.S.'s recall of minute details was extraordinary. And so by contrast, there was no whatever about it. And I'll give you an example. He stabbed Josephine Whitaker in the vagina. 
He doesn't want to say that and says, or whatever, and you know, that was ridiculous. They said it was a sexual motive. Well, how else do you stab somebody? Again, the lack of specificity points to deception. And remember that when he was arrested, he was wearing the V-neck sweater on his legs with hand-sewn pads on his knees for cushioning and comfort and that his genitals were exposed. And this was what he was wearing when he was found in the car with Olivia Rivers, more importantly, before he was going to kill her. Arresting P.S. saved Olivia's life. That was homicide prevention right there. Back to P.S. and the question he raised in the clip. Well, how else do you stab someone? Well, he raises that question, and to some, that might sound plausible on the surface to someone who doesn't know the case. But to someone like myself, who knows it well, it's clear to me that he's being manipulative and deceptive here. Let me explain further, and I apologise for being graphic, but the specific details about what he did are relevant regarding my analysis and forensic deconstruction of what he said. P.S. pulled the victim's bras up, exposing their breasts, and he pulled their underwear down. He stabbed them targeting particular places on their bodies, including the chest, the vagina, and he would carefully reinsert the knife several times into the same wound. For example, he inserted the knife three times into Josephine Whitaker's vagina. Now at trial, whilst holding the rusty yellow Phillips screwdriver in his hand, Sir Michael Havers QC asked P.S. this. How did you use this rusty old screwdriver that has been sharpened to a hideous point to stab Josephine Whitaker through the same wound three times? To put the stab wound in the vagina with no injury to the lips of the vagina is unusual. How did you do it? P.S. answered, by moving it about. The point here is that P.S. was very precise, very intentioned, very meticulous at each crime scene. When he attacked Marguerite, he stripped her naked bar a pair of tights after he hit her over the head, and he also strangled her. Three of her ribs were also fractured, and it's believed that he knelt on her chest to strangle her. Now again, these acts tell me that he liked to be up close and personal. He enjoyed every moment of the power over the women. And having done this, he then took off Marguerite's clothes. Professor Usher found clear evidence of a sexual assault. He said this, The undressing of this woman, and indeed the position in which she was found, and the three fingernail scratches upon her vulva, seem to suggest a sexual motive for this crime. And again, it's important to emphasise that this happened post-mortem. By way of reminder, I detailed the rape of Helen Ricker, and that he was sexually aroused when he hit her, and she was dying in front of him. He even admitted raping Helen, although at trial he said this, I didn't have sex. I entered her, but there was no action. It was to persuade her that everything was all right. I had no choice. It was important to keep her quiet. Well, the truth of the matter, she lay there dying in front of him, and his response was to put his erect penis in her vagina. He was sexually aroused, and he raped her. And then he said she didn't participate, and that he had no choice, and it was to keep her quiet. This shows such a callous disregard for Helen and a lack of empathy. And remember what Olivia Reavers said about P.S., that when she was in the car with him, that he couldn't get an erection from normal stimulation. But again, 
He was erect whilst masturbating over Marcella Claxton as she lay dying on the ground, and he was sexually aroused and erect when Helen was taking her last dying breaths. And I suspect this to be the case with Wilma McCann and others. And here's a reminder about what Dr. Milne, one of the psychiatrists who assessed P.S., said at the trial. I found there was no suggestion that the accused is in any way sexually deviant or that his wife is sexually deviant. He denied that he was using the assaults to help in the sexual situation. There is no suggestion that he is a sadistic sexual deviant. Now, just to reiterate, at no time did I assess P.S. directly, but his behaviour at the crime scenes and my behavioural analysis is important in terms of what it tells us about someone. And it indicates that he was aroused by the violence, and there are indicators which point to sexual sadism and necrophilia, as I said in the last episode. The sexual motive was clear to me throughout this case. Secondly, given P.S.'s proven behaviour at the crime scenes towards the victims and what it reveals about his psychopathology, a normal healthy sexual relationship is highly unlikely. And so Dr. Milne brought up his wife, Sonia. Now, regarding P.S.'s sexual relationship with Sonia, the fact that he was her first sexual partner and only sexual partner makes it less likely she would have known what was normal and what's not, or even that she would talk to anyone about their sex life. And what's normal after all? If you have nothing to compare it against, it's hard for someone to say. But I believe that sex would have been on his terms and would be a rare event and that he controlled that aspect of their relationship. And remember, whoever controls the emotional temperature of a relationship is in charge of it. And I also want to highlight what Dr Milne said when he was pushed by Harry Ognall QC, who was persistent and wouldn't let Dr Milne off the hook in giving him an answer about what he would call P.S. putting a screwdriver in Josephine's vagina if it were not a sexual act. Dr Milne finally conceded that putting the screwdriver into Josephine's vagina could not have been anything other than sexual. And yes, I say he finally conceded this. And then when he did, Dr Milne said this. He, P.S., said he never ever wanted to be seen as a sexual killer. Bingo. Damn straight he didn't. This sentence right here by Dr Milne was and is at the heart of this case. Of course he didn't want to be seen for who he was. This is exactly where Dr Milne should have probed further and not let him off the hook. But he was taken in by what P.S. said. And he believed him. He based his clinical assessment on what he'd been told by P.S. and his own self-report. This is what makes me so angry, and I had no idea about it before starting this reinvestigation. He and the other psychiatrists trusted what P.S. was telling them. That's what they base their clinical assessments on. And I'm still outraged by it. No sex offender or sexually motivated killer wants to be seen for who and what they truly are. Of course they will lie, manipulate and create scaffolding around themselves to stop this from happening. They would not want this on their charge sheet and they'll do anything to ensure that that doesn't happen. And I mean anything. It's the psychiatrist's job to understand this and probe further. The whole narrative around mission killer prostitutes was so very convenient for P.S. and unfortunately it was put on the table by the police. 
What better way to mask the true, rather more macabre motive for the murders than by using the faux narrative the police themselves had already spoken to and widely promulgated in the media? And just to underline the point here that identifying the motive doesn't just help with identifying the whom, which of course is hugely important, it's also instructive in terms of culpability, helping with diagnosing a person and risk managing them in terms of the ongoing risk and danger they present to others, in this case women, and to themselves. Therefore, it is hugely important. You see, if he was seen as a sexual sadist and killer, the divine mission would have gone out the window. And this was also now the one thing he was clinging on to, that he wasn't responsible. And having persuaded the doctors of this, he just had to persuade the court, and then he'd be off to a secure mental health hospital instead of prison and treated as a patient and not a criminal or sex offender. Chances are he would most likely be out a lot quicker too. He was counting on this, and that's what the prison official overheard him say when he was talking to Sonia. And what happened next is utterly mind-blowing and horrifying in equal measure, and I still can't quite believe what I've uncovered. Firstly, remember when Judge Borum specifically asked Dr. Malcolm McCulloch what would happen if he found out that P.S. had been lying about the voices? And you might recall that he said his diagnosis would fall. And I've already told you that at the time, the psychiatrists, including Dr. Milne, assessed P.S., they knew nothing about the rape kill kit P.S. was wearing when arrested or what he did to the women at the crime scenes, nor had they read the post-mortem reports or P.S.'s confession statement to the police or interviewed P.S.'s father and brother, all of whom said they saw no signs of any mental illness prior to his arrest. Well, that's bad enough, right? And that had me reeling for quite some time. But post-conviction and having been more enlightened about the actual facts of the case by Harry Ognall QC when he cross-examined Dr. Milne, post-conviction... Dr. Milne refused to accept the jury's verdict, and he continued to seek habeas corpus. Now, for those who don't know, habeas corpus is Latin for that you have the body. A writ of habeas corpus is used to bring a prisoner or other detainee before the court to determine if the person's imprisonment or detention is lawful. In other words, Dr. Milne still believed P.S. was suffering from paranoid schizophrenia, Or perhaps he just wanted to study him, but either way, he wanted P.S. in a secure unit and in his care. And so in May 1982, and after P.S. had spent just 12 months in Parkhurst Prison on the Isle of Wight, Dr. Hugo Milne made the 300-mile trip to see him and evaluate him once more. P.S. told Dr. Milne that he had visions and that he had seen Emily Jackson and others in his cell. He also said that he had smelt her perfume. Well, that sealed it for Dr. Milne. He was once more convinced that P.S. was unwell. He and two other psychiatrists wrote to the Home Secretary, William Whitelaw, and asked for P.S. to be transferred into their care. The Home Secretary refused. But weeks later, P.S. was attacked in prison by another prisoner who pushed glass in his face. P.S.'s family were concerned for his safety, and they said that P.S. was mentally ill and asked for him to be transferred to a secure unit where he'd be safe. The Home Secretary refused, but he did say he would keep the case under review, 
but that P.S. was to remain where he was. In March 1984, ten months after the general election, Margaret Thatcher was back in power, but a new Home Secretary was appointed, Leon Britton. Why am I telling you this, you're wondering? Well, Leon Britton, the new Home Secretary, did accept the psychiatrist's diagnosis, having been informed that P.S.'s condition had deteriorated. P.S. was now apparently hearing voices and would not take his medication, and prisoners cannot be compelled to take their medication. Therefore, the case was made for P.S. to be transferred to a secure unit where he would be treated and made to take his medication. And just like that, P.S. was transferred to Broadmoor Psychiatric Hospital. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger, and healthier-looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crime analyst for 10% off your first order. P.S.'s transfer to Broadmoor had profound implications. First, the fact that he was detained under Section 47 of the 1983 Mental Health Act meant that he was no longer a prisoner, but a patient. And he could now tell people that he was no longer criminally responsible for his behaviour. It was the voices. He had finally achieved his goal. 
of taking no responsibility for his actions and being transferred to a secure unit complete with ensuite facilities and newfound freedoms. So how exactly did this happen? What underpinned this decision? Well, I have to tell you a little bit about the law at the time, which laid down the precise criteria about how and when a person could be transferred to a secure hospital. Section 47 gave the Home Secretary the power of transfer when the patient had at least one of four types of mental disorder on the basis of reports from two psychiatrists. Now, mental disorder at the time was defined in law as a mental illness, arrested or incomplete development of mind, psychopathic disorder, or any other disorder or disability of the mind. Mental illness was not defined, however, and was dependent on what the doctors said in their assessment. However, importantly, it was stipulated that someone could not be transferred to a mental hospital by reason only of promiscuity or other immoral conduct or sexual deviancy. Now this, discovering this, has literally blown my mind yet again. I just cannot believe the twists and turns of this case. The perfect storm of one disastrous decision after another, which had such profound ramifications. You see now how important it is that motivation is identified and documented. The decision by the police officers to not submit into evidence at trial P.S.'s rape kill kit clothing that he was wearing when they arrested him had serious repercussions and ramifications down the line. And then there's P.S.'s voluntary confession about Wilma McCann and Emily Jackson, and I don't like to quote P.S., but I'd rather you hear his own words. Now, this is what he said about Emily. I took hold of her hands or wrists and pulled her into a yard which had rubbish in. I then made sure she was dead by taking a screwdriver and stabbing her repeatedly. I pulled her dress up and her bra before I stabbed her to make it easier. To be truthful, I pulled her clothes up in order to satisfy some sort of sexual revenge on her, as on reflection I had done to McCann. And remember how the police failed to interview P.S. about the other potentially linked offences that P.S. may have committed, despite the fact that P.S. was confessing and, according to A.C.C. Oldfield, singing like a canary. And remember the absence of anyone stating in the police reports that the attacks were sexually motivated. Well, this unfortunately all came home to roost in P.S.'s favour. It meant that there was no evidence of P.S.'s power and control and sexually motivated behaviour, the sexual sadism and or necrophilia in any of the official documents. Therefore, this decision to transfer P.S. was made based on the police reports, what P.S. said and what the psychiatrist opined, as if it were all fact. And unfortunately, it didn't end there. For the first 10 years that P.S. was in Broadmoor, he refused to take his medication. What an absolute irony and joke, given that it was the very reason he was transferred. It's just so disgraceful and utterly outrageous, and I'm so angry uncovering this. And I have a lot more to say about his time in Broadmoor Psychiatric Hospital, where P.S. would spend most of his years at a cost to the taxpayer of £325,000 per year, compared with around £26,000 in a normal prison. In Broadmoor, P.S. was allowed to write and receive letters and make around 15 phone calls per week. He had Freeview television in his room and a DVD player. 
His favourite programmes included X Factor, Strictly Come Dancing and Mrs Brown's Boys. And he, of course, met celebrities like Frank Bruno. Now, I explained that many women wrote to him and some were allowed to visit him. Well, he had visitation rights because he was treated as a patient. That's right. Broadmoor allowed him to have visitors and access to all his mail, amongst other privileges, due to the fact that he was a patient being cared for under the National Health Service and not a Category A prisoner in a maximum security prison. And he also received Social Security. So he received money from taxpayers, as well as a severe disablement allowance. And across the years, he accrued a fair amount of money for doing absolutely nothing and having killed and harmed many, many women. It's just so unbelievable. And I want you to hear from Diane Simpson and Olive Curry, two women who befriended P.S. and visited him regularly. And you'll also hear Richard McCann asking them questions about P.S. in this clip. I've come to meet Diane Simpson and Olive Curry, two women who have befriended Sutcliffe. They've spent years writing to him and have helped the police by visiting him to try and get further confessions. Well, I would say he'd think, what's in it for me? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And how can, how can I manipulate how this? How can I use this one? On the times that you met him, what did you think of him? What kind of person was he? What was most frightening about him is Mr Ordinary. Approaching any woman, you saw a clean-cut, decent-looking chap um, if he offers you a lift home, that's the one you'd go for. Yes. This you wasn't would, a job. Would. This is Mr. Nice, Mr. Decent, Mr. Trustworthy. That is Peter Sutcliffe. Yeah. Yes, that is him. He isn't. Sorry, we know that. Uh, God told him to do it. Saving souls is always his. You know, he heard voices. But I didn't believe that any more than he did. I don't believe he heard voices. I don't. On one occasion... He was referring to some of the victims' families, not the children on this occasion, but a mother who had said something that he said was vindictive. And I said to him, she's hardly vindictive, you killed her child. And he looked very angry, very pale. And at the end of the visit, um, he said, come here, die. And I thought, hello. He got hold of my head. I mean, he's not so stupid to do anything in front of people. Blue on the back of my head went, now you've had a blow on the back of the head. Did he ever speak about what he'd done or no. speak about the families? No. Ever? No. I said, you rendered 25 children motherless, justify that. You said? He, yes. Um, and without any thought, he said they'd have been better off without their mothers. And I said, who are you to say that? You don't know them. We'd have been better off without our mothers. Yeah. Because he had decided that all the women he killed were bad women. So he's not sorry for what he did. He's not remorseful. We are no. better off without... We are better off because our mothers are not here. He had no right to judge. Mm. This is a man with a personality disorder who could justify... He will uh, never get out anyway. He won't get out. Never. Uh, he'll die there. So he's not sorry for what he did? I haven't seen a single I've never heard anything. I've never no. he's not, And he's not going to be? No. So their takeaway was how ordinary and unremarkable P.S. was. And I said before, I believed this to be his secret weapon of sorts. 
I opined this from his behaviour at the crime scene and the fact that he'd be unassuming. It was actually the polar opposite of what the police and media made him out to be. And P.S.'s opinion that the children of the women he killed would have been better off without their mothers is revealing about him. How callous and indicates an empathy deficit. Plus, he's using the dominant misogynistic narrative at the time to excuse his violence towards women. Ugh, it makes me so angry hearing this. Not only did the police bungle the investigation spectacularly, which allowed him to kill and harm so many more women, and then they failed to write up their reports and enter his clothing into evidence, but they also gave him his defence. A defence that some were somewhat sympathetic to. And hearing that P.S. blew on the back of Diane's head and said, now you've had a blow on the back of the head from the R. Now, some would say that's his so-called dark sense of humour again. But I wouldn't call it that. This is another indicator of sadistic behaviour and how much he enjoys playing games at other people's expense, toying with them and feeling powerful and in control. And again, he showed no remorse for what he did. And his brother Carl said the same. He said that P.S. denied any responsibility for killing the women. I want to tell you a bit more about Diane Simpson, who you heard in the clip. Diane is an expert graphologist. In fact, she had consulted with West Yorkshire Police about the letters that ACC George Oldfield received. Interestingly, years later, P.S. wrote to her from Broadmoor and asked her to visit him. He had obviously been paying attention to his case and those involved in it. Well, Diane refused at first, but six months later she went to meet with him, and over the next ten years she spent over 400 hours talking with him, and Diane would report back to Keith Hallowell with her observations. She said that P.S. was the most manipulative person she knew and that he was a prolific liar. He would boast that he could get anyone to do whatever he wanted, in fact, he said that he got one woman to smuggle out uncensored letters for six years. Now, I would be very interested to know who he was writing to and what was contained within those letters. Well, P.S. would also say that he would make a woman feel special or like they were the one. In other words, he would manipulate their vulnerability. He told Diane he didn't need his meds as there was nothing wrong with him and he talked about when he would get out of the hospital. In fact, P.S. regularly boasted about not taking his meds to her, again, the very reason for him being there. But of course, this was a great coup to him, that he had won. And side note, it wasn't until years later that he would take the prescribed drug for schizophrenia. Interestingly, when Diane tried to end the correspondence with P.S., he hinted that he might tell her about other crimes he may have committed. He dangled the carrot, in other words, i.e. he manipulated her to continue to visit him, and Diane let where she ought to please know. This was the very reason Keith Hallowell became involved and interviewed P.S. about the other offences, and so inadvertently it was thanks to Diane that P.S. confessed to the attacks on Tracy Brown and Anne Rooney. Now, in 1992, he was also found in possession of two hacksaw blades, and once the hacksaw blades were found, all his visits were stopped, and that's when he started to take the prescribed drug for schizophrenia. You see, context really is everything. I wondered why P.S. started to take his medication years later. 
Of course, there would have to have been a reason, and it's much more likely he had to seem more credible again at this point. Now, in 1995, P.S.'s nurse, Frank Moan, gave an interview to the media and said that he believed P.S. had gamed the system and that he had lied so he didn't have to go to prison. He also said that P.S. killed because he enjoyed it and that P.S. remembered every detail of his crimes. Well, that's exactly what D.I.O. Boyle said too. In P.S.'s original police confession, P.S. confessed to being the killer and he seemed to be enjoying his moment, sharing all the details and no doubt reliving each attack as he did. In fact, D.I.O. Boyle said this, P.S.'s memory for detail was superb. He gave full, very clinical explanations and remembered every little detail about how he picked up each woman and how he killed them and how he left their bodies. P.S. remembered every detail as this was planned, premeditated and him acting out his fantasy. And like most fantasy-based sex offenders, he would relive this over and over again in his head and get off on it. It's what they enjoy and why they do it. P.S. also told Frank that he hadn't heard voices, nor did he suffer from any hallucinations or delusions. Frank said that P.S. kept his room neat and tidy, enjoyed his art, and admitted that he should be in prison, but that he enjoyed all the perks of Broadmoor. He said the voices would only appear when he was being assessed. Hmm, funny that. Frank wasn't the only person who believed P.S. was faking. Other prison officers and forensic nurses have also said similarly. Some have gone on record and others have spoken to me confidentially. But Carl, P.S.'s brother, has always been convinced his brother faked his mental illness. He said there was no sign of P.S. being ill in childhood. Carl spoke out in the media and said that P.S. would always say, I didn't know what I was doing and it was the voices in my head but Carl quite rightly queried, well, why did he get himself an alibi if he didn't know what he was doing? Well, that's a good point. And we know he used his wife Sonia as an alibi repeatedly. And remember, as I keep saying, the motivation is key to understand. It's not just about the words someone utters and or what they claim. It's about assessing and analysing their words, their actions, their deeds and their behaviour, are they in alignment? What does their actual behaviour leak out and reveal about them? In this case, what P.S. said when he confessed to the police across a 24-hour period was in alignment with his behaviour at the crime scenes. However, he did lie at times. But what he said post-charge and post-conviction was not in alignment. But in both situations, P.S.'s demeanour was reported on as being calm and there were no signs of any mental disorder and no mention of voices of God telling him to kill. And I talked about his cool, calm and collected decision-making at the crime scenes, emptying the handbag out, for example, very carefully, one item at a time, judging risk and decamping at the right time, which meant that on 17 occasions he was almost caught, but wasn't. He was careful and meticulous. And those who spent time with P.S. post-confession, including the forensic nurses and prison officers, those who I believe are in some ways more reliable than the psychiatrists, as they spend time with patients and prisoners every day and have everyday interactions with them. And so they're much more likely to have a more accurate understanding of what's really going on and whether someone is gaming the system. 
and most of them felt he was gaming the system. Yet the psychiatrist believed the Voices from God narrative, despite the fact he refused to take his meds, and in spite of the fact they failed to read the lengthy police confession statement, and despite the fact that there was an absence of signs or symptoms of any form of mental illness reported by his wife, family, friends or work colleagues pre-arrest. Now, I've conducted an indirect assessment of P.S. using the psychopathy checklist based on all that I've learned about him from reliable sources. Those who have assessed him, as well as those who knew him and spent time with him and through his own words and actions to determine whether he was a psychopath. And again, for transparency here, at no time have I directly assessed P.S. and therefore this is an indirect assessment and it's limited and restricted for that reason. However, in my experience, often the indirect assessments can be most enlightening as those who know him best hold a mirror up to him and it also helps get round the challenge of being manipulated by the subject. And given that psychopaths use high levels of charm, manipulation, deception and control, this is a very real problem for those who interview and work with psychopaths, which has been clearly demonstrated with this case in particular. And just also to say that should anyone else have any direct or indirect information they would like to share about PS, I'd be very interested in hearing it. Okay, so there are 20 traits of a psychopath according to Dr. Robert Hare. Now, I was trained by Dr. Joe Attrell from the Psychopathy Unit in the UK to recognise and identify these traits, and I'm going to discuss them as they apply to PS. Now, the maximum score on the PCLR is 40. And how you score is two, if the behaviour is significantly present, one for a maybe and zero for no. Now, anyone who scores 30 or above is most likely a psychopath. So starting with superficial charm, well, I scored him at two. He could turn it on or turn it off. He'd put women at ease. He talked to them. He made them feel safe. Number two, grandiose sense of self-worth. Now, some said that he fancied himself and thought a lot of himself, and I've scored him at two. Pathological liar. Well, he lied about most things, including why he did it. Two. Manipulative and conning. I've scored him at two, and I think I've gone through all the reasons why. Lack of remorse or guilt. I've scored him at two. Shallow effect or lack of emotions. I've scored him at two. Callous or lack of empathy? Well, that's been evident throughout, too. Parasitic lifestyle? Well, he moved from unskilled job to unskilled job when he was younger, but he did have a job as a lorry driver, and the boss at Clark said he was a good worker. And I have to say, I'm not sure about the financial setup between P.S. and Sonia, so I'm going to score this as zero. Poor behavioural controls? Well, he had difficulty keeping himself in check, drink driving, reckless driving, and he can't stop attacking women. So I've scored him at two. History of sexual promiscuity. P.S. used prostitutes. He cheated on Sonia. He pestered women, in inverted commas, sexually harassed them. I've scored him at two. History of early behavioral problems. I've scored him at two. Lack of realistic long-term goals. Now, I don't believe he thought through the long-term here. He did know that there was going to be a knock at the door 
and he hadn't planned things out in terms of long term. And that's what normally catches serial killers out. So I've given him a two. Impulsivity, well, it's similar to poor behavioral controls. And given his reckless driving, drink driving, speeding away from the police, parking tickets, and 11 separate motoring convictions, two. High level of irresponsibility, two. Proneness to boredom, two. Failure to accept responsibility, well, he's used the voice of God, two. Short-term marital relationships, Well, he was married to Sonia for a significant amount of time, but he cheated on her and he sexually harassed other women. And even in Broadmoor, he was telling women they were special in order to manipulate them. So two, history of juvenile delinquency. Yes, so two, revocation of conditional release. So this is flouting authority and breaches of orders. I haven't seen much about this, so I've scored him zero Criminal versatility, which is the last one. So they commit different types of crime and break the law under any circumstance. They don't believe laws apply to them. And so given his 11 separate motoring convictions, there's probably other things too, but I've scored him as two. So as I said, there are still some questions that I don't have the answers to. And so I've been conservative and scored zero on those questions. So it's not that the behaviour or trait isn't present, it's just that I don't know. So the total score is 36. It goes without saying that each time PS interacted with the psychiatrist, he was well aware that he was being assessed. He understood that he had everything to gain by keeping silent about the sexual behaviours and motivations. And I believed he played the long game. He had time on his hands. He could be strategic. Time was the one thing that worked in his favour. Put simply, he had nothing else to lose. And so I believed that PS continued to lie and deceive so that eventually he would cheat the system and win and be taken out of prison. And of course, that's exactly what happened. He manipulated them all. In my opinion, and according to the PCLR, P.S. was a psychopath. I also believe he was a sexual sadist and a necrophile who would have always been a risk to women. And currently no treatment or cure for psychopathy exists. It costs the taxpayer £11 million to house P.S. over 39 years. And just think about the millions of pounds it costs to investigate the murders, as well as for the publicity campaign and then the trial. And then there was all the legal aid that he received to fight the system and challenge his conviction in a bid to be released. P.S. received more than £65,000 in taxpayers' money after being repeatedly granted legal aid for his claims aimed at reducing his sentence or making his life easier. That's right, he was granted money from the public purse to fund a team of leading barristers in his high court battles to be released, as well as money to pay for his solicitor's fees for the mental health tribunals whilst at Broadmoor. You see, due to the fact that P.S. was a patient in Broadmoor with no time limit on how long he would be kept there, technically he could appeal and be released at any time if the psychiatrist agreed that he had been treated and no longer posed a risk to the public. Again, this is the difference between a secure psychiatric hospital and a prison. And P.S. was relentless. He continued to claim to all who would listen that the psychiatrist had said that he was almost cured and therefore no longer posed a risk to the public. You see, psychopaths never stop until they're stopped. 
It's a game to them. And we need to ensure we identify them far earlier using the PCLR. It will save lives and save money. There's one saving grace about this case, and that's PS wasn't released, but that didn't stop him trying at every turn. And it could have happened across the three decades that he tried. Now, just imagine how that must have felt for the families of the victims and for the survivors who had to continuously face this prospect. You see, for victims and families, it doesn't end when a perpetrator is convicted. There's no closure. It's why it's so important that if you're a professional, please consider the long-term implications of your decision-making and document everything when dealing with these dangerous serial and repeat violent men. And my final piece of advice, if I may, if it's not written down or submitted as evidence, it quite simply doesn't exist. So I'm signing off for now, and I hope you'll join me back in the Intelligence Cell for my next episode of The Forgotten Victims. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrood. Everything you have on your plate, 
Earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.